0: Hi, this is Kyle Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. If you have a question, please send it to us, and it might get on the air. It might get discussed. We get a lot of great questions, but I've narrowed down a couple today that I want to deal with because uh, they stand out exceptionally. Uh, first of all, Joe, who's listening in Sacramento, California, on 1620 AM— asks this question. He says, Hello, Cale. I have this kind of a weird theory about why Jesus delayed his public life until he was 30 years old. My theory says that it's weird that a man of his time would still be living at home with his mom at that age. I think that the reason was that as a quote unquote son of Joseph, he was subject to him and obeyed the fourth commandment. I think that maybe Joseph died and then Jesus was open to pursue the business of his heavenly father after that. What do you think? Well, that's a very interesting question, Joe. Really appreciate that. One of the reasons why he uh, may have waited until he was 30 years old to begin his public ministry may indeed have had something to do uh, with the passing of his foster father, Saint Joseph. It also may simply be. Uh, God's plan for Jesus, uh, the Father's plan for when he wanted the Son uh, to begin his public ministry. That can't be ruled out either. But there's also an interesting practical reason in the Jewish world of Jesus' day, why he waited specifically until he was 30 years of age to begin publicly ministering to Israel. And we read this, by the way, in Luke's Gospel. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus, when he was about 30 years of age, was baptized in the Jordan by John the baptizer and that's in Luke chapter 3 verse 23 and right after his baptism of course Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the enemy for 40 days. Now after this Jesus goes back to Galilee and begins teaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So this is soon after he turns 30. Now One of the reasons for this was because in Israel, in Jesus's day, rabbis did not really begin their public teaching or their public ministry until they were about 30 years old. Now this custom actually is handed down from the Old Testament. The law of Moses as put forth in the book of Numbers. Moses stipulated that priests of Israel could not begin until they were 30 years old. You can read about this in the book of Numbers chapter 4. Now it's kind of interesting also that uh, if you read on in Numbers in chapter 8, it says that the Levites could begin their duties when they were 25 years old. So what does this mean? Okay, do they start when they're 30 or when they're 25? In all likelihood, that between the ages of 25 and 30, the Levites would be sort of assistants, and then when they turned 30, they would kind of become full-fledged priests, members of uh, that priestly society, if you will, that was ministering to the rest of Israel. So this is, in fact, uh, probably where uh, this comes from in terms of where Jesus started his ministry at age 30. St. Jerome, the great biblical scholar uh, who... We just celebrated his feast day just a couple of days ago, and Pope Francis uh, released a, a very good apostolic letter on his ministry. He says, and so does another church father by the name of Origen, that no Jew was allowed to read from the Song of Solomon until attaining 30 years of age. So again, this is the age at which a devout and pious Jew could be considered mature enough to teach and lead others as a rabbi. Now where does the word rabbi come from, by the way? The English word rabbi comes from the Greek word, which means my master, my master. It's from the root word rab, and that in turn comes from the Hebrew word rav, which would be spelled in English r-a-v, which means great. Great, And so we see that uh, this title of great or master can be addressed to one's teacher. Uh, There's also another word in Greek called didaskalos, which is translated literally as master, which means essentially the same thing. So sometimes in, in, in the gospels, Jesus is called rabbi, as was John the Baptist. Sometimes he is called master. That means essentially the same thing exactly. Now, the rabbinical system of the Israelites really never got going in full in terms of uh, established rules for who is a rabbi and who is not until after the temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD. Prior to that, uh, there was a bit of a system of apprenticeship as to one, how one becomes a rabbi. And we see that uh, St. Paul in the acts of the apostles is noted as a student or an apprentice of gamaliel who was a very famous rabbi and you can read about this in acts chapter 22 verse 3 and acts chapter 5 uh, verse 34 if a young man at about 20 years of age held promise of becoming a religious teacher and wanted to continue being educated for that purpose, he would serve as an apprentice to a more well-known rabbi in a synagogue until he was about 30 years old. Now some have postulated that Jesus did that too in Nazareth. Uh, We see him reading from the scroll uh, at the synagogue in Luke chapter four. Is it possible that Jesus was preparing as a trained rabbi. I'm not so sure about that. Some people think maybe he was, but it's also possible that he was simply working with Joseph and only got on the public scene as a teacher when he was about 30 years old. But uh, a lay person could, could sort of just get out there and form disciples and teach people and, and draw a following, not necessarily needing to be uh, trained by a more uh, well-established rabbi. You could potentially do that. Anybody who's a teacher, at the end of the day, could be called rabbi. And that's essentially what Jesus was doing. We see some hints that Jesus was not formally trained as a rabbi, perhaps, when we look at John chapter 7. When Jesus's brethren, as the text tells us, his relatives, had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up, and this is uh, John chapter 7, verse 10, not publicly, but in private. And This is the Feast of Tabernacles. It says the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And by that, uh, the text means the Jewish religious authorities. Of course, all of them are Jews. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. The Jews marveled at it, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so that sort of uh, comment that was made towards Jesus was meant to indicate that he was not a trained rabbi that they knew of. Or it could also be a slight that he was from the Galilee, And, you know, a rabbi from the galley would really be considered to be not legit. You know, it's almost like, you know, we have many uh, lay people teaching in the church today and writing books and giving talks. Uh, They don't necessarily have a PhD uh, from an established institution. And so, in the eyes of the public, well, maybe having a PhD gives you a lot more credibility. That might have been the sort of situation that Jesus was dealing with as well. Paul, who had studied under the very famed Rabbi Rabbi Gamaliel, as we just talked about, uh, would have been considered a very legitimate rabbi in the eyes of the people. So, there you have it. I think that is the reason why Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. It was traditional at that time that this is when... If you were going to teach others, you would begin that process. And if you were to do it when he was a bit younger, uh, it would not have been accepted among uh, his fellow Jews. So I think that's a big part of it. And Joe, as to your question about uh, the death of Joseph, uh, I I think it's very, very legitimate to surmise that Joseph has in fact passed away uh, by this time when Jesus begins his public ministry. And Joseph need not have been an old man, you know, in the, in the modern sense of the word, uh, to have died. Life expectancy was not very long by today's standards in the first century world of Israel. Sometimes we think of, you know, we see movies about Jesus and, and his life uh, depicted, whether it's The Passion of the Christ or Jesus of Nazareth or one of those movies, when Caiaphas, the high priest, condemns Jesus to death. He's often depicted as a very aged man, you know, with a long white beard. Not the case in all likelihood. Caiaphas was probably about 50 years old when this happened, but he still would have been considered quite old. That was at the tail end of life expectancy at that time. People just didn't live that long. Uh, We know this because Caiaphas's bones were found. The bone box or ossuary belonging to Caiaphas was found uh, in the Peace Forest uh, near Jerusalem and in a burial site which contained the bones of Caiaphas and some of his relatives. Very ornate uh, bone box or ossuary as one would expect given his title and given the significance of his position and that's now on display at the Israel Museum. But examining the bones scientists were able to determine that he was about 50 years old uh, when he died. So there you have it. Uh, Joseph probably also died around that time or maybe prior to that time. So what is considered old? Uh, It's a lot younger uh, than we might think. In the eastern wing of the church uh, there's always been a tradition that Joseph was an older man who simply married the Blessed Virgin to be her guardian, uh, to protect her. And sometimes in paintings and art that comes from the East icons, he's depicted, again, as, as an old man with a, with a long white beard. Uh, again, he need not have been that old in order to have been considered older. He could have been in his uh, 30s uh, or 40s when he uh, married Mary and gone to Egypt. He still would have been strong enough to make that journey uh, at that point in his life, but still again, given lifespans to have passed away before Jesus began his public ministry. So, that's in all likelihood what was going on there. Now, in terms of what Jesus and Joseph were actually doing, if Jesus wasn't really training to become a rabbi when he was in his twenties, he was probably still working with Joseph. And what kind of work exactly did they do? What sorts of projects uh, were they working on? How did the place where Jesus grew up actually influence his teaching? You might be surprised. You know, my favorite basketball player when I was growing up was the legendary Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics. The media, and Larry himself, kind of liked to play up his humble small town roots, dubbing him the Hick from French Lick. And French Lick, of course, was the very small Indiana town where Larry Bird grew up. He was just a kid from the sticks, as we used to say, who made good. And for centuries, preachers similarly accented the alleged small town roots of Jesus. Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, is usually portrayed in homilies as some sort of a, you know, an isolated backwater, far removed from the hustle and bustle of the big cities of the Roman Empire. Now, it's certainly true that in Jesus' day, Nazareth was a relatively tiny place. It had a population somewhere between 200 and 400 people in the village. But recent archaeological excavations around Nazareth And by the way, if you go to Nazareth today, if you've ever been on a tour of the Holy Land, you know that it's a relatively bustling city of about 60,000 people. But if you uh, have taken any note of the archaeological excavations that have been going on around Nazareth, you know that this quaint myth that Jesus kind of grew up among country bumpkins, as it were, removed from the major centers of commerce and culture of his day, Uh, Those myths have pretty much been quashed by these discoveries that have have been made, been unearthed. And One of the most important archaeological digs uh, in recent times in the area took place at Sepphoris, which is a city that's located about four miles north of Nazareth, not that far at all. The Jewish historian Josephus, who lived in the first century and wrote about the times of Jesus, the times he was living in, He called Sepphoris the ornament of all of Galilee. It was the largest and one of the most important cities in the area. In fact, there was actually a major highway that linked Sepphoris with the two other major regional cities in the area. Caesarea Maritima, or Caesars by the Sea, if you will. Uh, Herod the Great had founded this city uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, He was in love with all things Roman, and and this city had all the hallmarks of a Roman city, a Hippodrome, a great theater. So there is Caesarea Maritima, and there is also Tiberius, which is another big city in the area. So all three of them were not far from one another, and a highway uh, linked them all together. Nazareth, I guess you could say, was kind of on an off-ramp from this highway that led to Sepphoris. So considering the proximity of the city of Sepphoris to Nazareth, it's highly likely that Jesus would have traveled there on many occasions. Actually, according to an early church tradition, the Blessed Virgin Mary herself actually hailed from Sepphoris. That's where she grew up. That's where uh, her parents, Saints Joachim and Saint Anne lived. One could easily imagine, you know, Jesus, you know, Mary and Joseph making the very, very short trip to see Jesus' grandparents, to see the parents of the Blessed Virgin on the weekends. You know, perhaps uh, he had many sleepovers there growing up at his grandparents' place, who knows? He certainly would have had uh, interactions with them if they lived that closely. Another thing that Josephus tells us is that Herod Antipas, who kind of took over uh, governing the region after the death of his father Herod the Great, from around the time when Jesus was born to about the year AD 39, there was a great building project that took place uh, under the direction of Herod Antipas. Sepphoris was to be built up, and in fact there was lots of work to be done there colonnaded streets were built uh, with magnificent pillars uh, in the Romanesque tradition. There is a great theater that was built which actually held about 2,500 people in Jesus's time and later on it expanded to about 10,000 people uh, that it could hold. And that actual Greek word in the New Testament that describes the work that Jesus and Joseph did, the word tekton, actually can mean much more than simply carpentry work. Uh, It refers actually to to being a highly skilled laborer who would have been proficient in working with all kinds of materials. Uh, Wood, yes, but also stone. And in fact, Joseph and Jesus might have had architectural abilities as well. One might even say that they were the equivalent of modern day engineers. So Antipas, Herod Antipas, had originally intended to make Sepphoris his headquarters, and that's why he was building it up uh, so much. Now, the the recent uh, archaeological excavations at Sepphoris have not only uh, unearthed this magnificent theater and the colonnaded streets of the town, Uh, and by the way, it's quite likely that Jesus and Joseph, we'll never know for sure, maybe they even helped to build that theater, and that's going to come into play in Jesus' teaching, as we will see. But it also uh, helps, this this excavation at the city of Sepphoris, helps to debunk a very popular skeptical theory about Jesus. Uh, The famed scholar and ex-Catholic priest, he's a very skeptical scholar, John Dominic Crossan, argues that in his early life, Jesus was hanging out in Sepphoris and came under the sway of some itinerant, cynical philosophers who greatly influenced his teaching. But excavations at the city dump have completely disproved that. There was no uh, pagan uh, Greek philosophy at the time of Jesus. Uh, cynic philosophers wandering around at the time of Jesus. One of the great things that archaeologists try to do is they try to locate the city dump wherever they're uh, excavating if they're trying to dig up an ancient town. The city dump can tell us a lot about the people that used to live in a certain place. It can tell you what they ate, uh, they're often throwing away documents, uh, stuff they were writing about, were they literate, uh, what were they talking about, and it is no different when it comes to this city of Sepphoris, very close to where Jesus grew up. Archaeology is kind of like unearthing a layer cake. And the farther you dig down into the ground, you you dig through these different layers of time. So the farther back you go uh, is really uh, as far down as you go in the ground. Going down further in the ground means going back farther in time. And these are these different, what are called strata, or layers of remains in the earth. And the ones that are dated after The destruction of the temple in 70 AD in Jerusalem. After 70 AD, we do find some evidence of pagan ways in the city of Sepphoris. Pig bones, of course the Jews would never eat pig, they were considered not kosher. Other evidence of Hellenizing or Greek influence, and that's very consistent with the fact that the city's non-Jewish population did grow after the year 70 AD. But before that, when Jesus was, was walking around in the area, every single person who lived in Sepphoris was Jewish. There are no uh, pig bones found uh, from the uh, layer of time at the time of Jesus. Also, another great thing that you can do in these archeological digs is to try to look for coins. Coins tell you a lot too. Coins help to date uh, certain uh, layers of, of strata in the earth. Coins that were minted in Sepphoris prior to the year A.D. 70 don't have any images of the Emperor as a god. Remember, the Romans used to worship the Caesar, the Roman Emperor, almost as a living god. Now that would have clearly offended devout Jews who only worshiped the one true and living God of Israel. So we don't find those coins prior to the year 70 Uh, at the digs in Sepphoris. So when Jesus was walking around in that town with his grandparents, with his mother Mary, guess what? It was a completely Jewish town. Very, very interesting. They've also found their bathing pools used for Jewish purification rites. They're called mikvot, as well as menorahs. They've been found from around the time of Jesus as well. So it's highly unlikely That Jesus came under the sway of pagan cynic philosophers uh, during his early life in and around Nazareth. That did not influence his teaching at all. His teaching, just like the area that he came from, is thoroughly Jewish. And by the way, uh, the city of Sepphoris, so close to Nazareth, is also a potential boon for understanding and clarifying a lot of what Jesus actually taught about. Jesus was a master at using parables. Pointing out profound lessons from the everyday world. I mean, think about all his many agricultural parables and parables about work. I believe there's a high probability that Sepphoris was a part of that world, and it figured prominently in Jesus's preaching, especially as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, verse fourteen, he said, "A city that is set on a hill cannot be." hidden. And of course he was speaking about the community that he was founding the church and how it would stand out as a beacon of righteousness in the world. Well, I think he got that image from Sepphoris because where he was growing up in Nazareth about, you know, 4 miles away, he would have been able to come out of his house at night and look across at Sepphoris which was built on a hill and he would have seen in the distance The beauty of all the houses with their uh, torches lighting up the homes on the outside at night. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It would have been quite a beautiful sight. Excavations at at Sepphoris, as I mentioned earlier, also talked about the very splendid public theater that was carved out of the local bedrock. Could it be that Jesus and Joseph worked on its construction? We may never know. But I do think that a lot of aspects of this theater and what was going on there did get into Jesus' preaching. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus mentions hypocrites. Now, hypocrite orig- originally meant simply play actor. There were, there were no negative connotations to that word. An actor on stage in a theater. Now, of course, in our time, to call someone a hypocrite (laughs) is a great insult. It means that you are insincere. Uh, People-pleasing piety is the name of the game. And really, all those negative connotations come from the way Jesus used that term in the Sermon on the Mount. In all likelihood, he got this idea from the theater. Let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 beware of practicing your piety before people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven now when he says in order to be seen by people uh, the greek word that underlines uh, or underlies that that uh, phrase is the word theathenai, from which we get the word theater so it's this idea of putting on a show Uh, Jesus says in the second verse, When you give alms, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees the secret will reward you. So this idea of sounding the trumpet was used in the theater to indicate a change of scene. And so Jesus is saying, don't draw attention to yourself when you're giving alms. You know, it's it's not like a, a lottery winner who's passed a, a big blank cardboard check, you know. Like, don't put that in the offering basket. You know, don't draw all this attention to yourself. Because you're really looking for human applause. In fact, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And again, that's a reference to the theater. Because actors would... Well, we all know people that talk with their hands, right? Actors would do that, too. They would coordinate the skillful movement of their hands with what they were saying for a greater and greater effect. Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't make a performance out of it. Your father sees what's going on in secret, and he will reward you. And what about prayer? Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the play actors. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, this is probably a reference to a soliloquy when an actor goes out on stage and kind of recites this sort of monologue. And that's what it sounds like You know, when a lot of people are praying just so other people can hear them and hear how pious they are, hear how theologically wonderful they are, that's not what Jesus thinks we should do. Uh, we we don't. In this case, the prayer is not to edify others or to please God. It's simply to put on a, a show, a performance, and so we we shouldn't do that in our own uh, personal piety. And then, of course, he talks about fasting. Uh, Jesus says, "When you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites." for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by men truly i say to you they have their reward when you fast anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by men but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you so again you know when you're fasting have a shower shave you know put on your clothes dress up nicely don't make it obvious that you're suffering because then you're going to kind of lose your reward that's all the time we have for today. But if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com, or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio. And I'll see you in the next episode of the Faith Explained. God bless.